Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, and this is a special episode. We will be detailing, when I say we, I mean me and Jason Fitzgerald from the Strength and Running podcast. Jason does amazing work in so many areas. Make sure you go check him out. We just finished watching the race. We're going to delve into it, analyzing the men, the women, the race, the course, the production, the TV production, all of the above. I cannot wait. Thank you, Jason, for coming on this show. And Without further ado, here is our conversation about the 2020 Olympic Marathon Trials. Jason, what a day. We just watched the Olympic Marathon Trials, the men and the women. It was everything that I hoped it would be in terms of just how amazing today was. What are your first impressions, um, not just post-race, but during the race itself, how you were feeling as things were progressing? Yeah. I mean, what a race. It was so exciting. Uh, I, I think a lot of the magic was on the women's side where you had people who qualified for the Olympics and, and who are now on the Olympic team who are not household names. They ran incredible races. Almost none of the favorites are now in that top three who are heading to the Olympics. So it was a really exciting race. And, and I think it was a great example of the magic of the marathon, because this is a race where anything can happen and some crazy things did happen today. Absolutely. So let's just, in case no one has seen the results, spoiler alert, <laughs> we're going to tell you about them right now. So this is going to go out Sunday morning. The race just finished up. It's three o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time where I am. So from the women's side, we got Alephine Tuliamuk winning it in 227.23. Molly Seidel, 227.31, just behind her. And then finishing third, Sally Kipiego. Those will be our Olympians this summer. Uh, rounding out uh, that top group, got Des Linden just after, um, just after Sally. Laura Thweet as well, followed by Stephanie Bruce, Emma Bates. I'm just scrolling down here. Kellen Taylor, Nell Rojas, uh, and uh, Julia Conan finishing in the top 10. Um, basically, Kellen Taylor, uh, who finished eighth, was the last person to, to go sub 230. On the men's side, we have Galen Rupp winning it in 209.20. Second, Jacob Riley. Jacob Riley coming in second, 210.02. Third, Abdi Abdurrahman, 43-year-old Abdi Abdurrahman. If you had, if you didn't know his age, you do know it now because they said it, I think, 10,000 times on the broadcast. And once you know it, finished 43 seconds behind first uh, for a little numerical symmetry as well. Finishing fourth, Leonard Career, and then Mayo, um, here, Albertson, Hampton, uh, Benny. I mean, the top 10 here on the men's side is just amazing. And Matt McDonald, it was just an incredible top 10. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about how these races played out. Okay, the men's side um, played out similarly to 2016. The women were a completely different matter. So let's talk about the women's side first. What was your expectation about how this race would be run for the women's race? You know, I went into this race not really having an expectation of how the women will would would attack the race and run the course. You know, I, I think we should actually talk about the course as well, because that really plays into how uh, these athletes attacked the course on the women's side. You know, they ran a fairly uh, conservative race in terms of race strategy. You know, I don't, I don't think their pacing was incredibly conservative. Um, but you know, you have to consider that it was pretty windy and that this was a very rolling course. There was a lot of uh, substantial hills on this course. Uh, so it's not necessarily the fastest course, which you can see in the times. Um, but the pack of women up through about 20 miles was very big. You know, there was a big front pack. No one made any big moves early on. And this race was really won and, and executed on in the final 10K. So it was really exciting to watch that final 10K. But for the first 20 miles, I, I think they worked together. I think they stayed together. Nobody made any big moves. And so I think it was a, a much more tactical race over the final several miles. Yeah, and it's interesting because besides Jordan Hesse, who fell off around mile, mile, around mile 12 and a half, mile 13, it was in that core group of 20, 15 to 20 odd women. Again, it got whittled down over time. Um, it was exactly who you would expect. 
who would be in the race. And then around mile 20, like you mentioned, then things started to get interesting. And this is one of the things that you can't really see when you're watching on TV is are people speeding up or are people slowing down? And you can kind of see it if you're tracking online, doing the dual screen thing or, you know, after the fact, you know, right now I'm on my, I got my laptop in front of me as I'm talking to you. And it becomes clear very quickly going through the tracking that Alephine and Molly basically just didn't slow down. They might have had a small surge. It was hard to tell in the broadcast that separated them a little bit. But ultimately, everyone else, even in the top 10, were pushing six minute miles in the last, you know, two to four miles where Alephine and Molly were really able to hold it together. And if I told you, Jason, that that's how the race would play out and didn't say any of the names, would you think that would be Molly Seidel and Alephine Tuliamuk were the people who were, who were able to execute that plan of not fading as opposed to, you know, pulling off some sort of like miracle move earlier in the race? <laughs> no, not at all. No, it, it, you know, the marathon is one of those events where it really favors the runner that can hold it together because, you know, I like to call the marathon uh, a race where after mile 20, it's like the wild west. You just don't know what's going to happen. Anything and everything can happen. And it's the runner who can prevent those, um, you know, those problems from happening over the final 10 K that's going to do even better in this kind of a race, you know, you don't fall apart like this in a 5k, uh, but you certainly can fall apart like this in a marathon. And, you know, I actually had to look up Molly Seidel because I, I wasn't familiar with her before this race. And, uh, I thought that it was worth noting the fact that both Molly Seidel and, uh, Riley on the men's side, they have pretty substantial cross-country backgrounds. You know, Molly Seidel uh, ran in a bunch of cross-country championships. Uh, Riley was part of Stanford's, uh, some of Stanford's really strong cross-country teams. And, and I think the windy nature of the course really lent itself to scrappier runners. Uh, and, and, you know, the runners who have strength from cross-country, uh, you know, I, I wasn't surprised to see Des Linden uh, in fourth place. You know, she's a favorite of mine. I was kind of hoping that she'd be in the top three representing us at the Olympics. But, you know, this really reminds me, uh, not, not to the same degree, but a little bit of Boston 2018, where Des Linden won. You know, the, the mentally tough runner who isn't thrown off by the adversity of the terrain, by the wind. You know, that's the runner who's going to really excel uh, on a day like today. And, and we saw that. We saw Riley and Seidel with cross-country backgrounds do really well and place in the top three. And then even though Deslinda didn't quite make it, she was fourth. And, and I think she's probably one of the me more mentally tough uh, uh, scrappy runners out there. So it, it was just so exciting to see. And uh, you're right. I was totally blown away by the fact that a lot of the women in that front pack after mile 20 were, were not the favorites. You didn't have, uh, you know, all of the more popular women who, you know, you were expecting to see, um, like Jordan Hesse, like Emily Sisson or Molly Huddle or Sarah Hall. Where did Sarah Hall go? I, I just didn't see any of them in the final five miles or so. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's hard to compare the men and the women on this point because there isn't a huge difference, I feel like, in the top 12 women in terms of name recognition for a lot of people. Like, there isn't a big difference between, like, you know, Sarah Hall and, say, Steph Bruce, right? Like, I mean, for people who aren't, who aren't you know, completely into the marathon, then maybe there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. I think Sarah Hall, I'm looking at the, the tracker right now, Jason. I don't think she finished. Well, you know, she's had an interesting couple of years with the marathon. Uh, and, and I know that, I forget if it was in 2019, I think it was, she ran several marathons in a very short time period. Uh, and so I, I do wonder if, you know, she's a little bit burnt out on the marathon, if she's just been racing 26.2 miles too many times over the last one to two years, because it is a very stressful event and, and you have to make sure you're recovering enough uh, and you simply can't run too many of them. You know, it's not the 5K. That's true. And it's so interesting because you have this, this odd dichotomy, right, with that sort of thing, right? You have going into this race, I think a lot of people, me included, were like, hey, if all things being equal, I'm going to take the established marathoner just because of how hard this course was. You could literally see on the broadcast the slope uphill and downhill, which is an amazing feat. Anyone who's ever watched running on, you know, on TV, 
Uh, or I think another comparison here is golf. Like, usually the TV flattens out the depth of the topography. So if you can see on, like, if you're watching golf and you can see a hill, like, that means it's enormous. If you're watching, again, just like today, if you're watching the marathon and you can see a slope, that means it's it's amazing uphill or downhill slope. And there were, there were times during this race where I was like, this looks like I would get hurt if I was running down this hill right now. <laughs> Did you see the huge downhill that was maybe about 200 meters from the finish line? That one made my knees hurt just looking at it, especially <laughs> when you had Abdi and Riley kind of sprinting the last quarter mile to the finish line, and they're going down that super steep hill, and there's that sharp left turn at the end. Yeah, my knees were not happy just watching that scene. <laughs> they were actually, I think, was, I think Riley had a little bit of airplane arms, a little bit, like they were starting to rise up. Anyone who's gone downhill too fast knows what I mean. Like your elbows start to go a little bit higher and higher and higher, and it's, it really is amazing. They showed Sally Kipiego at a round... 25.2 going downhill when they started really focusing on who would who would get third and she was running downhill and even the announcer said it like oh god look at this decline this is insane um let's talk about molly said so you're you know the strength running podcast this is your deal <laughs> talking about strength and running molly seidel as they said a million times and, and understandably so this was her first marathon her first marathon on one of you know one of the toughest courses any of these men or women will ever run especially in a high profile marathon how does somebody with that background who took significant time off of competitive running i'm sure she was running but like competitive running at the highest level because of eating disorder and, and that challenge for her and then to come into this with no marathon running experience, how does someone like that prepare themselves for this kind of challenge? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, her, her I, I really do think her cross-country background likely helped her a lot with uh, the uneven footing of cross-country, the rolling terrain. Uh, it's just much more of a gritty type of, of an event than, say, a track race or a road race. But you're right. She has experienced so much adversity over the last couple of years. Uh, and, you know, uh, with her eating disorder and the fact that this was her first marathon, uh, you know, and in a way, it's almost like this being her first marathon was a good thing for her. You know, you go into the race not knowing what mile 24 is going to feel like. And anyone who who watched the race or watches a recap of the race, you can see the suffering in Molly Seidel's face. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where you wonder, would she have gone out as hard or would she have stuck with that lead pack for as long and been as gutsy if she didn't know uh, or rather, if she did know it was going to hurt that much and she was going to be in such a deep well of suffering, it's a great question. And, you know, uh, I'd love to learn more about her training and how she prepared for a race like this, because, uh, you know, like I said, I I've almost never heard of her before. I had to look her up and I'm just blown away by the fact that she's been able to overcome this adversity and run her first marathon ever and, and now be an Olympian. It's just simply incredible. Yeah, and so I was at Houston in January where she basically finished neck and neck with her college teammate, Molly Huddle, and or they both went to Notre Dame, I should say. And it was you know one of those things where even at the even at that moment, it was like Molly ran great. But I think, you know, with those tune-up races, it's so hard to put them into context. And I think for a lot of people, you know, maybe me included, because Molly really wasn't included in a lot of people's predictions for this race. It was kind of like, all right, she must have gone into that race making like Houston her A race. And, you know, Molly Huddle and the rest of the the rest of the women were viewing it as just a tune up for Atlanta. And maybe that's why she was like basically right there with the leaders and on the American side. And now we know that just isn't the case. You, you probably approach it the exact same way everyone else did. And that was that finish was a harbinger of things to come. Where in the moment, I think most people viewed it as almost like a non sequitur to like the, the general conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I think fast half marathons don't get a lot of credit for preparing runners for the marathon um, because, you know, it's almost like you have to run a really, really fast half for for you to start thinking okay wow now i'm ready to run a great marathon because you know it's interesting the half marathon in terms of difficulty in terms of 
the things that the race is going to throw at you to make it more challenging. The half marathon isn't simply half the challenge of a marathon. I think it's far less than that, which makes the marathon an even more demanding event. You know, it's it, when you go from 13.1 miles to 26.2 miles, you're not just increasing the length of the race by a double, but you're just, you're pushing your body beyond the point where it can even store enough fuel. So there's some real physiological challenges with the marathon itself. And so when we see people run a good half, a, a lot of commentators, you know, don't put a lot of stock into that because you can have speed and you can fake your way through a half marathon, but nobody can fake their way through a marathon. And uh, I think she proved today without a shadow of a doubt that she did. She doesn't just have some speed and was able to pull out a good half. She is a great distance runner. She has phenomenal endurance, and she proved that she has the guts and the grit to grind her way through a really, really hard 26.2 miles. I'm going to take a quick break to talk about Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker. It's just the best way to figure out what your body needs. Did you know that 50% of women runners are low in iron? 50%. Well, you need to find out if you are too. And there's you know 42 other different biomarkers that Inside Tracker catalogs and uses. Also, they work with so many runners who are in the Olympic trials because these runners know that the best way to improve their training is to control the controllables. And for so many people, that's diet nutrition and supplementation that's exactly what inside tracker can provide to you they take an insider's look into your body and what it needs so go to insidetracker.com and use code rambling runner 15 to save 15 i'm sorry don't use, don't use code rambling runner 15 use rambling runner to save 15 percent. that's right rambling runner to save 15 percent on your purchase And let's talk about alephine because alephine, as they mentioned near the end of the broadcast, had a stress fracture, uh, you know, a little, little under a year ago. And I was talking to a friend of mine and he's, he who lives in Flagstaff, has been able to see them training, you know, it doesn't work for Nazli, but it's in around that area. And was like, listen, she ran 228 in Chicago on basically no training. Like she had, you know, a little bit, you know, she was back to running, but no real marathon training. And he was like, Hey, I think she's going to make the team for sure. He goes, because just, just saying, hey, she, you know, if you look at what she was able to do in Chicago and then she had a good cycle, she's going to be super fit. And I looked at that and I took like the negative view of it. I was like, all right, she hasn't had like a great year in terms of health. This course is so demanding. What's it going to mean? And I think they even mentioned on the broadcast, like if you had anything that was bothering you in the lead up, this course was going to amplify it. That certainly was not the case for Alephine Tuliamuk, who absolutely looked like she could have kept running for like three more miles at the pace she was running. She just never slowed down. It was amazing to witness. She negative split the course and she just put on an absolute clinic. And it's just at this point, I don't know how you feel, Jason, but I just feel like the, you know, the sky is the limit for her in regards to what she could do this summer. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, she's 30 years old. Uh, her her PR isn't particularly fast. I think it's around 226 or, or somewhere around there. So there were definitely uh, athletes in the race that had faster PRs. And it, as far as I understand her preparation and her training for this race, uh, it, it wasn't perfect, you know? And she, she had uh, a lot of things that were knocking her confidence. And uh, I was listening to an interview or, or reading a text interview rather, but she was talking about the fact that, you know, with a couple of weeks to go, you know, she was hoping that her fitness would come along. And, and that's really the voice of someone who thinks they're in good shape, but knows they're not in their peak performance shape. And so I, I think a lot of magic happened over those last couple of weeks. She probably had a couple of good workouts uh, that really boosted her confidence. And she was probably just one of those runners who felt good on the day. And with a course like this, you know, when it's really sunny, when the, the hills are constant, you're just doing a rolling course and you're doing loops of that. Uh, and then of course, with the wind that they were experiencing, this was a really mentally challenging course. And, and I think, 
you know, with you said what you said earlier is absolutely right. If you had any chinks in your armor, this race was simply going to amplify those and and really give you a tough day. And uh, Des Linden said something really interesting as well. She said something like, "This course will make you second guess yourself the entire time." And that just goes to show how challenging the course was. And that gave us some of the really unpredictable results on the women's side. Uh, but it's interesting. You look on the men's side, and uh, besides Riley, I, I wasn't too surprised. Oh, that's interesting because I was. I felt like the men's side was far more unpredictable than the women's. All right, so let's do, don't touch on one more thing on the women's side before we dive over to the men. Uh, actually, two things. First of all, shout out to Sarah Sellers, finished 11th, perfectly split the course. On a day where so many women from mile 21 to 26, I shouldn't say women because the exact same thing happened to the men, where 21 to 26, you know, people were running 15, 20, 30 seconds slower per mile than they had the rest of the way. She was right there, paced herself absolutely perfectly, comes in at 231.48. Again, a perfectly even split, which you almost never see for someone unless they, you know, in a situation like this, unless they win the race. You see some people say, all right. I'm going to stay with the leaders and hang on for as long as I can. She paced herself perfectly, which kind of gives up her bona fides for racing, like just in the worst possible, toughest conditions. Can you say, besides this race, what's her best race? It's Boston 2018. And those are the two most grueling marathons that we've had in America over the past five years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sarah Sellers you know, nobody knew her name before Boston 2018, where uh, she placed second, I believe, and, you know, came out of nowhere. And in fact, I don't even think she started with the elite runners. She was back in the somewhat competitive corral at Boston and then, you know, ended up running an amazing race. So yeah, it's really interesting to see, you know, the type of runner who excelled on a course like this, uh, because I think it is very mentally challenging. And it probably does lend itself to, you know, like the runner like Des Linden, who, you know, ha has had to work really hard from the very beginning of her career. She she does not have as much natural talent as some of these other athletes. Like, for example, Sarah Hall. Sarah Hall has been a standout runner since she was 15 years old. Des Linden, not, not as much. She's had to work harder for that. Uh, and Sarah Sellers, I believe, is a nurse and works full-time and fits in 80-plus miles a week around her full-time job. And so there's a certain amount of toughness that comes along with that that I think is just very impressive, and it's so great to see. Uh, and, and I think part of that is, is, is the reason why we're seeing such a resurgence in American women's distance running. I think women are just running gutsy. They're, they're just believing in themselves. They're, they're starting to put themselves on the line. And I, it's just so amazing to see. I'm, I'm, it's just incredible. All right. Last thing before we get to the men, but this will also, um, is a topic for the men is what happens when, you know, the best of the best fall off the pace and then they realize, all right, I'm not going to get it. I'm not getting top three. I just don't have it. And what they decide to do. Because what we had here, again, I don't know what happened for these women, you know, so it, it, this is a little bit in terms of, all right, trying to figure out from afar what their thinking could have been. But Sarah Hall, Molly Huddle, and Emily Sisson, which for many people might have been their top three prediction, all dropped between miles 21 and 22. Now, unless they had an injury, I think this is interesting because you have a situation where maybe they're thinking, Okay, I don't have it. I can't I can't stay with these women. I'm not going to finish top three, and I'm going to save myself maybe to try to get in the money at Boston or thinking long term about you know the the USA um, 10k um, later this summer and making sure they're prepared for that. What were you, what are you thinking when you see again a race like this and then people again as long as they're not injured, you know, kind of stepping away during the last few miles, you know, maybe thinking that there's something in the future that they want to maybe potentially save themselves for. Right. This is a much more strategic decision that they've probably thought about much earlier than, you know, mile 20 of the race when they know that they're out of contention for the top three. Um, you know, for the elite runner, they don't think the same way about racing as the rest of us. You know, a lot of us finish a marathon and we're excited about the accomplishment. These runners can finish a marathon any day of the week. And so for them, finishing is not really an accomplishment. And, and they're in it for, you know, the competition. They're in it for the glory. And, and they want to make the team. If some of the top runners aren't going to make the Olympic team, 
it's a it's it's almost an easy decision for them to say I'm not going to finish this race and I'm going to save myself for an upcoming performance. And that just goes to speak to the nature of the marathon. And, and particularly, I find it interesting uh, the point in, in the race where they dropped out. So these runners all dropped out around mile 21 or 22. That's right when the marathon starts getting really, really difficult. And, and part of the reason is because, number one, the muscle damage is just so acute at that point. And you are just fighting through, you know, really sore legs. And uh, because of the hilly course, it was made even worse. You know, all, the, all that downhill running, all the eccentric muscle contractions, all of the pounding on your muscles, those runners are just in a world of hurt. And the other interesting thing about this is that, you know, right at this point is when the body stops being able to provide the carbohydrates that they need to keep running so fast. So that's why they're drinking uh, their bottles, they're having gels, they probably carb loaded before the race, they're trying to go as long as possible without running out of fuel. And so what happened is these athletes got to the point where the marathon gets really, really tough. They knew they weren't going to make the team. So they decided to save themselves. And, and from a professional perspective, you know, they need to save themselves so that they can continue to be fast, continue to win races and post fast times so they can, you know, uh, support themselves. And, you know, this is their livelihood. And, and if they were to finish and, and, you know, have a really tough final three, four, five miles, then they run the risk of number one, really prolonging their recovery, getting an injury or hurting their performances in an upcoming race where, you know, there's money on the line, there's a potential, another uh, Olympic spot on the line. So from my perspective, these runners have every reason to drop out of the race. Uh, and, and I think it would be the runners who were not the favorites, were the runners who, you know, they're not going to be in contention to win Boston no matter what. Those are the runners that take those big risks. But the more established runners, they have more to lose. And so I don't think they are going to take those big risks. And I think you can see that on the men's side with Galen Rupp. Galen Rupp came in as the 2016 trials winner, uh, the favorite. He had the fastest PR coming into the race. And he ran a very tactically sound, patient race where he didn't take any big risks. He ran his own race. And, you know, it was pretty clear, I think, around mile 16 or 18, somewhere in there, that's when he felt good. And that's when he just took over and, and he pretty much dominated from there. But it, it's an interesting perspective looking at, you know, who are you in the race? Are you one of the favorites or, you know, are you kind of a long shot? And that really helps define the type of risks that these athletes are about to take. Yeah, that's really well put. And for me, the men's race felt very similar um, at least for Galen's sake, uh, as 2016, right? 2016, yeah, he basically yeah. did the exact same thing. He, you know, a lot of people were keying off of him to see what he would do and basically said, I'm not doing anything <laughs> for the first 16 miles. I'm just, I'm going to stay with the leaders and, you know, I, I, I'm faster than you guys and I'll, I don't need to prove it, you know, in the first hour and a half or so. And that's pretty much exactly what happened here. Um, the big thing here, boy, was this fun. I did not expect the first 10 miles to be as entertaining, Jason, as it turned out to be. Brian Schrader, out of, out of nowhere. <laughs> NAU guy, uh, again, 213, high 213 marathoner in Chicago. You know, Chicago this past year, 2019, was a historic race for American marathoners. 10 people broke 212. Uh, which was a, just an enormous thing. You know, he was he ran very well there too. But again, two minutes slower than the vast majority of people that were kind of in that main central group for Americans. He goes out, and I just can't wait for the post race interviews with Brian Schrader. So he drops at mile sixteen, which even when he dropped, he it's not like he had these like seven minute miles after going out really really hard. I wonder if this was, you know, I, I just, I don't know what to make of it. Do, what did you, what, what did you make of not only the move in real time, but then knowing that he drops out, like, you know, just over half marathon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he's one of those people where, you know, he, he really doesn't have anything to lose. He's, he's not in contention for the top three. He's never going to make the Olympic team. You know, the, the quality of the field is just so high that someone who is more than seven minutes slower than the top guys in terms of a raw personal best time, he, he's just not going to do it. And, and, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the 
issue of risk, right? He he could risk it all because he had nothing to lose. Galen Rupp is not going to go out at a, and run a 430 mile and just blow the doors off the entire field right from the very beginning because he has so much more to lose. And you see this in almost every major marathon. The people with the early breakaways are very rarely the winners. It's usually not a good strategy because it's 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 almost a strategy of desperation. It's your last ditch effort to try to catch that magic in a bottle. And he unfortunately, he didn't get it. And I don't know. I'm surprised that he dropped out. I, I think if I were someone who... Uh, you know, made a big move like that and was running in the Olympic trials, I did maybe finish the race, but that's just me. So the women, the, the main group of women, again, the top 15 to 20, basically ran, they, bas- they basically didn't save themselves. Their time, and I don't think they this was properly expressed on the broadcast. They were running 228, 229 pace literally the entire time after mile two, which on that course on that day was probably as fast as any of them could run during that race. So they really went out, they ran hard, and it was just a matter of attrition on some level. Where the men, you know, besides Schrader and Dan Nestor for a little bit, this was basically a first half, second half race where you know, the, the top finishers all negative split. The top finishers um, all ran underneath um, almost all of their miles in the last six to nine miles were under five minute pace. And it was just a matter of, okay, we're saving ourselves, we're saving ourselves, we're saving ourselves, and then we're going to push, 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 which in that situation, and again, Jason, please correct me if you disagree. I feel like when you have that sort of race, it lends itself to basically seeing like, okay, whoever is, you know, the most highly regarded runners will probably do do the best because it really allows their talent to shine, you know, being able to save themselves a little bit in the first half. Again, it's, it's a relative term. And then really push it near the end. And yet, you know, when you go past the top four, so obviously Jacob Riley was a surprise to some degree. Then Abdi Abdurrahman, then Leonard Career. Both those guys are very highly regarded. But then you get to Martin Hahir, C.J. Albertson, Jonas Hampton, you know, coming in before the likes of Tyler Pinnell and Scott Fobble and Brendan Gregg and Bernard Lagat, Scott Ward. Smith, Jared Ward. I haven't gotten to him yet. Sam Chalenga, Jim Walmsley. Again, we'll talk about Jim Walmsley later. You know, for me, it was like, wow, this is this rate did not turn out at all how I was expecting. And seeing some people fall all the way down. Uh, a race list, which you would never expect. To put that in perspective, Connor McMillan and Jared Ward finished together. They're good friends. They're training partners. They finished 26th and 27th in 215.55, which I can you imagine? Again, I had to scroll to the second page of the leaderboard to get to Jared Ward. And this is not at all what I was expecting, especially in a race like this where he's so established. He's run so many marathons. He's so strong of a runner. And wouldn't you know it, in the last three miles, he averaged six-minute mile pace. Yeah, that's that's like my marathon pace. That's pedestrian. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if, yeah, you, I mean, if you, you look at him, if you, if you compare his last three miles to Alephine Tuliamuk, she would have put a minute on him in that 5K. Yeah, I, I think two things about that. Number one, uh, I, I think it goes to show how tough the day was. It's a hard course. It was windy out there. And because they were running loops of the course, they were getting wind from all different directions. And so it's very challenging physically. It's also very challenging mentally. And so, you know, that makes the race more unpredictable. It's just you don't know what's going to happen. You don't you don't know that Riley is going to qualify for the Olympics and 43-year-old Abdi is going to be right there with him. I mean, that is, you know, on the one hand, surprising. On the other hand, I don't think you can ever count out Abdi. He's, like you said, highly regarded. He has some great 10K speed. Um, and he's yeah, he a veteran. He ran great in New York. And he ran great in New York, Jason. I mean, he had like a 210 in New York in the fall which that course, again, is, is one of the more challenging major courses that we got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he you can't count someone like him out. 
Uh, and, and the fact that it was such an unpredictable course uh, with some adverse weather, you know, I think a lot of these guys, especially someone, you know, let's just take Jared Ward, for example, you know, when you're back in, you know, 20th place, I, I forget exactly what his place was, uh, but when you're back that far and, you know, you know, you're not having a good day, it becomes one of those issues where, you know, do I want to run 21450 or 21550? And that one minute difference doesn't really matter except to my recovery and to how, you know, the last 10 miles of the course is really going to feel. And so I think a lot of these runners, you know, almost pack it in a little bit because uh, they have nothing to gain by trying to run as hard as they can. And then that, you know, juxtaposes the decision about do I keep running at all? Right. We just talked about Sarah Hall, Molly Huddle, Emily Sisson. Again, barring injury, do you keep running or do you just kind of slow down to more of an easy pace? Again, easy pace for them, right? Six-minute mile pace for Jared Ward is probably slower than his easy pace. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, he's running tempo runs slow, much faster than that. Yeah. All right. So I load the symmetry here for the second-place runners of the men and the women. Molly Seidel, Jacob Riley. This is great because you have the situation where both of them, you know, took some, you know, were, were well-established runners in college, right? High-level runners where you said, hey, this person is going to run professional for a long time. No one would have second-guessed it, right? But then for different reasons, each had a two-year span or so where, you know, they were, no, <laughs> Jacob Riley wasn't running at all. They, I think the best line in the broadcast, I don't know if you heard of this, Jason, was when um, Jacob was talking about himself in a pre-race interview and said that he felt like 10 pounds of dirt in a five pound bag. And as, as an overweight male, <laughs> I know exactly what that feels like. And to see these people again on this course, not have like the typical marathon bill again, Laura Thweet, same thing, right? Battling injury, battling injury coming up and then having the race of their lives on this course. It is amazing to me when you compare it to the people who, you know, who have had, great health over the past few years have were just ex equally excited for this race and you know no fault through no fault of their own really weren't able to execute and then you see people like molly and jacob and then you're just kind of like shoot man on these races you just never know what's going to happen yeah you really can't count yourself out if you're running in terrible weather if the course is really hard because a lot of the times uh the best runners you know on paper will go into one of these races and maybe they didn't train for the hills as much, or maybe the temperature is really adversely affecting them. Maybe your sweat rate is more advantageous for a hotter day. There's so many different things that could give you an advantage over technically faster runners on paper when it's a tough day. So, you know, I would much rather want to be racing almost a time trial, fast, flat, no hills if I was one of the best runners in the field, because I would want to rely on my speed and my tactical race chops. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if you go into the Olympic trials and, you know, maybe you qualified and, and you're like, uh, you know, like Schrader, you have a 213 PR, then you know, you'll never win a race like that. You know that you will never be able to win a race when it's just all about speed. So you have to put yourself in a position to take advantage of the adversity. And, and I think that's what we saw with a lot of these runners today. I love the CJ Albertson part of this. So CJ Albertson finished the seventh. I was lucky enough to have him on, his, on uh, my show a couple months ago. And this guy, he has the indoor record for a marathon. He did it at the Armory. <laughs> at the Armory, he ran a marathon. And, you know, this guy is so tough. He did unbelievable training. Mario Frioli had him on his show and detailed a lot of this. And, you know, he's basically like a Strava celebrity, like Walmsley, in terms of like the crazy workouts he was doing. But obviously, within that craziness, you know, it was, you know, obviously it worked out for him because he was absolutely ready for this race. He was on Luke Pascadra's heels when Luke went out, what, a half mile into the race? Luke Pascadra put the pedal to the metal. CJ was the one behind him, and he finished seventh. So this guy was in it from the gun, and he could not wait. I had him as my dark horse into this race because he had that wonderful combination of he obviously was really tough, had that atypical background, and had absolutely nothing to lose. And for him, it all came together. I'm so happy for him because he's also such a great guy. And it's just one of those wonderful stories of like, again, this is this is a perfect example of there's no such thing as like 
the ideal way to train for these races. It is so individualistic. And on some level, you just have to figure it out because like you look at his training versus say, all right, well, Jim Walmsley also had crazy training. He must have done great too. Like, no, C.J. Albertson did much better than Jim Walmsley. So you can't even make these those apples to apples comparisons. And it's just so interesting to see this as a sport that delves so highly into the metrics, you know, for, for so many things. And it can be very important in so many ways that you see someone like CJ and you're like, hey, man, sometimes it just doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it, this can be such an individualistic sport in terms of what works for you in the short term and long term. Yeah, the training is so interesting. And as a marathoner, you just have to try a bunch of things and experiment uh, and to see what works for you. I found one of the more interesting comments by the broadcasters is when they were talking about, you know, traditionally, it's better that runners come up through the distances. And, and that's when you uh, become a better marathoner, when you've honed your speed and gotten fast first in the 5k and the 10k and the half marathon. And, you know, I, I'm in agreement with this. I, I, I think the if, if you can extend the range of speed that you have available to yourself, then you just have more speed to draw from. You layer on some endurance, you layer on those marathon-specific long runs, and you're going to be a much better marathoner than someone who you know is coming from the other direction. And I think we saw that with Jim Wamsley, who um, you know I don't think did as well as as he was hoping. And you know I, I was really interested to see if if someone like him would be up in contention, uh, but we didn't really see him much of the race. And, and I think it's really important to note that, you know, with the marathon becoming more competitive over the last decade, you know, and, and I think not just on the women's side, you know, women's side is very deep right now. Uh, on the men's side, and, and this is true on the women's side too, for both as well, but it's just getting so fast too. I mean, we have a sub two marathoner living on the planet right now, which is mind blowing. And I know it wasn't a sanctioned race, but even the world record is under 202. And so the marathon is not a slow event anymore. This is, we are not, you know, looking at the days when marathons are being won in 211, 212. You really have to be on a slow course to win in a time like that. And you have to have speed available to you. And, you know, you saw the finish of the men's race. They're sprinting with like a half mile to go down a hill. And, and if you don't have the speed available to you, if you never honed it on the track, it's going to be really hard to be a good marathoner in our modern age. Yeah, that's interesting because you also see a lot of East Africans who are going up to the marathon very early in their career. And maybe it's because both well, they, they were, you know, super fast in the 5K, 10K earlier in their career as well. So they just had a, the same progression, but just in a more condensed period of time. But you're also seeing that. So it's it's, it's interesting dichotomy. And I think the last thing I, I want to talk about the, the press conference that popped in and disrupted the, the running world <laughs> in a second. Last thing runners were not happy. Runners were not happy. Before we dive into that, though, uh, let's talk about the shoes for a second, because that was such a topic of conversation coming in. So top three men, there was one pair of Alpha Flies. Top three women, one pair of Alpha Flies. One pair of Alpha Flies in the top eight women. Uh, I think the men, uh, it might have been four or five in the top ten or so. Um, ultimately, for something that was such a huge story for so long, a complete non-story on race day. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I was expecting a complete sea of Nike Alpha Flies crossing the finish line together at the end, and we didn't really see that. Uh, of course, we're, I, don't, I don't think we're saying that the shoes don't give you an advantage and you know whether or not they can be considered mechanical doping or however you want to describe it is, is kind of a separate thing. But yeah, you're right. I, we didn't see the domination of these shoes at the trials this year. And, and I wonder if that's because they were hyped too much or they came into contact with reality. And even though, you know, they, they have been worn by a lot of fast runners recently, you know, other runners who don't have a Nike shoe contract are, are just not going to let other runners beat them simply because the shoes that they're wearing. And I also wonder how much the course plays a part in this. Dina mentioned it uh, during the broadcast. She focused on going uphill. Um, I'm thinking more about the downhill because one of the big things with these shoes are the stack height. And if you're going down significant downhills and you're up on, you know, 35, um, you know, a stack height of 35, close to 40, and you're going down a significant downhill, 
that can be a perilous experience. And I can't imagine like those hills again looked hard for me. Even if I was running like in minimalist shoes, I can't imagine being on a stack height of 40 and going down some of those some of those declines or taking those turns, uh, those hairpin turns in those shoes. It would have been a hard experience for a lot of people. And I just think I wonder if stability on a course like that minimizes the effect that that shoe might provide on a flat course. That's a great perspective. And I'd be really interested in learning more about that too, because I, I think you're right. I think, you know, these shoes are, it's almost like the track. The track is made for speed, right? And the alpha flies are made for speed. And the problem becomes if you're not running almost in a straight line the entire way and, uh, on a flat course, and you're instead running a lot of turns, and, and there were several uh, 180 degree turns, which if you've ever been running fast in a race, trying to make a 180 degree turn, you understand how challenging it is. You basically have to slow down to a jog and then get back going again. And, and I do wonder if because of the hills, because of the turns, if these shoes were not as advantageous as if the course was flatter with fewer turns. Because I think the bigger the stack height and the more that these shoes kind of uh, automatically put you up on your toes, I think that makes them less responsive. You know, if, if you're running a technical trail, for example, these are the last shoes that you want. You can't feel the ground. They get in the way with that really high stack height. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you have to wear the shoes that are best for you, but also good for the course that you're about to run. And I do wonder if these shoes may have put some runners at a disadvantage because they're not as good for, you know, cornering hair pin turns with grace. And they're not as good for navigating all those ups and downs when, you know, if you were in a more traditional racing shoe, that's, you know, racing shoes used to be called flats because they were, they were very close to the ground and they had usually zero heel to toe drop. And so now when you have these shoes that are so different, you start to wonder, well, you know, they might be good for trying to run as hard as you can in a very controlled environment on a very fast course. But when you're exposed to the elements and, and all these types of adversity on the course, they may actually slow you down. Yeah. And I, I wonder about the decision-making of Abdi Abdurrahman here. So he's a Nike athlete and he was wearing the vapor flies today, which obviously if he wanted to wear the alpha flies, I'm sure he could have. And you wonder if it was a race day decision based on the course or if in training, they just didn't quite agree with him. Yeah. And, and the other thing too is, you know, everyone has different mechanics. And, and I know that for me personally, I would never wear these shoes because I know that they would uh, make me feel uncomfortable. They're, they're not the type of shoe that I just feel good in while I'm racing. Uh, and so you just wonder if, if he happens to be one of those athletes too, that, you know, they, they don't like the high stack height. They don't like the carbon fiber plate that gives it all that bounce. And so you do wonder if personal preference comes into play too. All right, before we get going, obviously, around mile 20 of the men's race or so, uh, mile, what, 13-ish of the women's race, 14, um, there was a, the, the president had an official press conference and, you know, with those sorts of things, you know, you're, it's, it's one of those deals where if you're a, uh, you know, primetime channel, you know, you're ABC, NBC, uh, CBS, or Fox, like you go to that immediately, right? The president is speaking and he's talking about two important things, the coronavirus and a... Uh, you know, a peace deal with the Taliban. Obviously, those are important things for every American to know. But I know that there was certainly a section of the running community who were probably thinking to themselves, could you just wait till 3.30, please? Can you just wait till 3.30? Kudos to NBC Gold. Their app worked for me. I don't know about everybody else. It was a seamless transition on my end. Hopefully it was for everybody else as well. But I can imagine no matter your political uh, affinity, that moment of being like, can you just wait one more hour? please. And I don't know if, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe the Olympic trials marathon just isn't uh, mainstream enough for the, for the white house to, uh, to delay their own, their own, uh, broadcasting. You know, I wasn't sure why we needed to break away and it was a solid 10 or 15 minutes from the race. Cause I had to watch on network cable. I wasn't on the app. So I had to actually sit there through the press conference and uh, not much was said. You know, this is one of these things where uh, I wasn't sure if the information was super timely. So I don't know why they couldn't wait a little bit. Uh, but I think it was just, 
I think a lot of women were upset with the symbolism of Donald Trump interrupting history with the deepest women's trials field ever to talk about, you know, <laughs> to talk about, you know, the things that are, that are going on uh, at the White House, uh, particularly with the fact that, you know, the it wasn't super timely. Like, can't you just wait? And I think a lot of people just got upset with that. Um, you know, I, I tweeted out during the race, the endurance needed to watch Trump instead of the trials might be more than is needed to run the race. And that tweet was actually fairly popular. It kind of went a little viral. And I think the running community appreciated the fact that, uh, it was tough breaking away from something that only happens once every four years to hear Trump drone on and on. Jason, coming in hot. All right, Jason, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. We've been on here for almost an hour. If you don't already, please subscribe to Jason's podcast, Running Strength Podcast. You do great work, not only in your podcast, your YouTube videos, and in so many other um, mediums. Thank you so much for hopping on the show today. Oh, well, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for the plug for the Strength Running Podcast and our YouTube channel. Both are, are doing really well right now. And uh, I was very, I, I loved seeing that the fact that your podcast and mine were number one, two in Apple Music the other day, which was really cool. So great to hang out with you and, and talk a little shop right now. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm the Galen Rupp to your Jacob Riley, I guess. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Jason, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. This has been an absolutely wonderful buildup from June all the way to the Olympic Marathon trials. We've been building and building and building up to this point, and it was everything I thought it would be. What an absolutely fantastic race. The show goes on, though. So we're going to do recap episodes with everybody who ran the race, who has been a part of this show so far. And then, starting in late March, we're going to put our eyes towards the track trials in the summer. So we'll have a new a new uh, slate of guests that will be coming on. I can't wait to talk more about that. But in the meantime, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to my other podcast, the Rambling Runner podcast as well, where we dive into all things related to dedicated amateur runners with occasional elites on there as well when they have something they want to talk about that is related to amateur running. So thank you so much for listening, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It means so much to me. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti from InPost Media. Also, thank you to MetaP for the music and his song, Evolution.